The sermon today comes from the book of Joshua, chapter 14. It begins at verse 6. Then the people of Judah came to Joshua at Gilgal, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh the Kenizzite, came to him. You know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God in Kadesh Barnea, concerning you and me? I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land, and I brought him word again as it was in my heart. But my brothers who went up with me made the heart of the people melt. Yet I wholly followed the Lord my God. And Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land on which your foot has trodden shall be an inheritance for you and your children forever, because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. And now, behold, the Lord has kept me alive, just as he said these 45 years since the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses, while Israel walked in the wilderness. And now, behold, I am this day 85 years old, and I'm still as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me. My strength now is as my strength was then for war and for going and coming. So now, give me this hill country of which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day how the Anakim were there with great and fortified cities. It may be that the Lord will be with me and I shall drive them out just as the Lord said. Then Joshua blessed him and he gave Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, for an inheritance. Therefore, Hebron became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, to this day, because he wholly followed the Lord, the God of Israel. Now, the name of Hebron formerly was Kiriath Arba. Arba was the greatest man among the Anakim, and the land had rest from war. Let's pray, shall we? Merciful Father, you've given sight to the blind, you've given hearing to the deaf, you've made the lame to walk, you've raised the dead to life. For such were we by nature, outside of Christ, blind and deaf and lame and dead. Now having given us life, Heavenly Father, please don't leave us in the dark as to which way we should set our course, but speak to us afresh by this, your word, the Bible, thunder to us from heaven, we pray. And speak again these words which your spirit first inspired for our edification and exhortation and encouragement and rebuke. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please take a seat. Let me just add my welcome, especially uh, to the family and friends of the Turner household and the Hurt household. Uh, it is wonderful to have you with us uh, here at All Saints. We hope you enjoy worshipping with us and you're blessed by our time together. And we look forward to getting to know you a little bit, Lord willing, uh, at the reception that follows the service. Today I want to set before you a portrait of a remarkable man. A man of God. A man by the name of Caleb. A man who is set before us in the book of Joshua specifically as an example to imitate. Now this is obviously relevant to all of us. All of us need role models, men and women in lots of different ways, yet I have some people specifically in mind, inevitably on a day when we've got a baptism and a whole new family joins the church. Maybe, Mr. Turner, your newly baptised son might need some advice, might need somebody to follow, might need somebody to show him the way to follow Christ. You will know how to do that if you imitate this man, Caleb. Mr. and Mrs. Hurt and your family, 
I don't know what it is that makes people sometimes remember some sermons more than others, but perhaps somebody might remember the topic, at least, of a sermon on the day that they were joined formally to the church. So maybe for you, maybe in the Lord's providence, this is something for you guys to reflect on, to imitate this man, Caleb. Others, of course, there's so many different people, different stages of life, young people going off to college for the first time, a young couple newly engaged. Maybe more soberly, adults whose own parents were either absent for one reason or another, or who, truth be told, even by their own judgment, weren't all that they wished they could have been to you. There are many people like that. We've all met, maybe that's you yourself, who um, you had a father, but, you know, and you love him still, but it wasn't always easy to see him as a great role model. Who are you going to follow? Well, in one sense, we follow Jesus, don't we? But Jesus is painted in multicolor throughout the Scriptures. We don't just have four Gospels to show us Jesus. We've got this man. And the message of the passage today is that this cameo of Caleb, this little snapshot of him, is there for us, well, first, specifically for the Israelites, and now, therefore, for us to imitate this man. Let me recap briefly what I've said uh, a number of times before in sermons on Joshua, just the purpose and shape of the book as a whole. Then I want to go in a bit more detail just for a minute or two to give you an, an outline of the book, which will help us to understand uh, how the whole thing fits together. The book of Joshua is the account of the entry of the people of Israel into the promised lands to receive the inheritance that God had promised them through Moses under the leadership of their great leader, Joshua. And so it speaks to the church, the purpose of the book of Joshua, as distinct from what it's just about, the purpose of it is to show the church how we are to go out into the world to conquer through the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, the Gospel of Christ, under the leadership of our great Joshua, Jesus, same name, Greek, Hebrew, so that we may receive the inheritance of the world, Romans 4, which God has promised to us. How are we to fight for the world like this? The book of Joshua shows us. Now, that's familiar. Now, let me just give you a bit more detail about the shape of the book. The book of Joshua is broken into four sections. Section, chapter 1 through, halfway through chapter 5, entering the land. 5 through 12, conquering the land. 13 through 21, allocating the land. And then the fourth section, 22 to 24, retaining the land. That's basically, every commentator you read will... um, uh, highlight those sections. And what's interesting about it is that just the breakdown of the sections themselves suggests some lines of application or implications for us, which are really helpful for us to meditate on. And if, uh, just very briefly, you remember some of the things that we've drawn out of those passages. So the first section, entering the land, it's like those four and a half chapters set the agenda. Chapter one, it's all about the promises of God. Be strong and courageous to do all the Lord has called on you to do. Remain united as a people. Chapter two, Don't look to the great men with great titles. Your crack troops, those spies, they won't help you. It'll probably be some Gentile prostitute woman who will cause you to enter the land. Chapters 3 and 4, it's a liturgical conquest. The crossing of the river is depicted as an act of worship, which is why as soon as they get across the river in chapter 5, the first thing they do is circumcise all the men and then celebrate the Passover because we're not going to win this by sword and battle. We might win it by trumpet because by trumpets we call upon the throne of the living God to act. So that sets the agenda. Then you see the conquest proceed from chapter 5 onwards. The first person you meet is the commander of the army of the Lord because this is an act of God's grace. It's not you Israelites fulfilling your petty grievances against all those pagan nations. No, you're agents of the ministry of the living God to act in judgment against the nations of the world who have reached the point of no return 
in their sin and iniquity after those 400 years that the Lord said to Abraham back in the book of Genesis. So the grace and power of God is at work. Then chapter 6, you've got to overthrow the evil of the world. You have to actually call it out and say what it is. Remembering chapters 7 and 8, that actually the evil is mostly within us as well. Achan. And then chapters sort of 9, 10, 11, 12, you get this tremendously optimistic vision. And I, had a, I gave as many sermons as I thought I could get away with on post-millennialism. Because, you know, it's Sunday, right? And so this tremendously optimistic vision of the kingdom's expansion through history. Jesus isn't just going to snatch a couple of souls off the burning deck of a sinking ship. Jesus is out to transform the world, which is what we're engaged in now. So that's the second section, conquering the land. Right, so then you get to the third section. And you kind of all knew this was coming. Like, you, oh, we're going to preach on the book of Joshua. That'll be interesting for about 12 chapters. Then you get to chapter 13, and the lists begin. And it's hardly the most inspiring material in the Bible in the face of it. So what are we to make of these long, long lists of geographical locations that you've never heard of? It's like, thank you, Lord, for all that detail. I could probably have slept fine without it. In fact, I probably sleep better with it, but that's really not your intention. Why all the lists? Why all the place names? Well, there's a, a couple of intertwined themes I want to highlight for you. One we'll come back to another time, which is that you see the Lord's faithfulness to his people in history, in concrete ways. One of the reasons these chapters are so meaningless at first glance to us is because we don't recognize any of the places. But what if the Lord had stood up and said, right, you guys, Robinson family, you can have Texas. You'd be like, yes, bring it on. Because it means, so we're going to look at that another time. But then you also see how the people of God respond to his faithfulness as this wonderful plan unfolds. And that's particularly highlighted in four little mini-conversations, which scholars sometimes call land-grant narratives. They are little uh, chocolate chunks scattered through the dough of the cookie. Right? Uh, there are four of them. Little conversations or sub-narratives, land-grant narratives, in this long section. There's one in chapter 15, Othniel and Axa talking to Caleb. There's one in chapter 17, the daughters of Zelophehad. There's one at the end of chapter um, 17 with the tribe of Joseph. And the first one is here. This is the first big gooey, sticky, juicy chocolate chunk in this glorious cookie that you're all going to come to know and love because you thought lists boring. No. Right? And here's the first chunk of chocolate that all the kids go straight to and they sort of stick their finger in it. And, right? That's what we're looking at today. It's the first conversation within this long section. And what this one highlights, really, it's Caleb the model Israelite. I'll show you why I think that in a few minutes. And basically, he's, it's very simple. At one level, the outline of what he did is so trivially obvious that you think, well, thanks, we didn't need Joshua to tell us that. He believed the promises of God. Uh, he, his commitment endured, uh, and he sought out new challenges. But once you see the color uh, that, that Caleb's life shows... I'm, I'm, I'm confident that you'll think, yeah, this guy is worth thinking about, meditating on, and imitating. So first up, the first thing he did that was so great was that he believed what God had said. He believed the promises of God. Now, most famously, this is exemplified in the most uh, extended narrative about Caleb, back in the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 13 and 14, the, the episode of the spies, where 12 spies, Joshua, Caleb, and 10 others went into the land, and they all said, this place is great. Check out the two-meter, sorry, six-foot-long uh, bunches of grapes everywhere. Um, but oh, they're, they're too, they're, the inhabitants of the land are too strong for us. And Caleb and Joshua said, no, they're not. We can do it. We can take them on. God has promised. It's not just that 
you know, Caleb and Joshua were optimists and everyone else was pessimists. It's that Joshua and Caleb were faithful. They believed the word of God. That's um, Dale Ralph Davis in his superb little commentary on this book. And so look at chapter, six, uh, uh, chapter 14, verse 6. We'll just talk through this. Uh, the people of Judah came to Joshua at Gilgal, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, stood up and said to him, You know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God in Kadesh Barnea, concerning you and me, after we did that thing, the spies thing. And then he recounts it, verse 7. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me out from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land, and I brought him word again as it was in my heart. But my brothers, you remember, those losers who went up with us, they made the heart of the people melt. But I... I wholly followed the Lord my God. Now, very interesting question here. Why has it gone from Joshua and Caleb, we, to I? I'll show you in a few minutes. Hang on, hang on. Why is Caleb pointing to himself as such a significant figure in this when Joshua was there? Come back to that. Where are we? And Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land on which your foot has trodden shall be an inheritance for you and for your children forever, because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. So he's promised this land as an inheritance because he believed God could do it in contrast to all the other Israelite spies who thought he couldn't. And now behold, the Lord has kept me alive just as he said. Yeah, he's kept his word. He's kept his promises. These 45 years since the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses while Israel walked in the wilderness. Now, behold, I've waited long enough. I'm 85, for goodness sake. How long do I have to wait? I'm still as strong today as I was in the day Moses sent me. My strength now is as my strength was then for going and coming. So give me the hill country. Give me what the Lord promised. And notice the emphasis on the Lord's promise. Give me the hill country of which the Lord spoke on that day. Can you see? Again and again, he's emphasizing, look, you remember, we were there. And we stood alone amid this gaggle of cowards, these other spies. And we said that we believe the Lord. Now, the Lord promised he'd give me his inheritance. This inheritance is mine. Now give it to me. And it's fascinating, again, and we'll, you realize why this is. Joshua doesn't say a word, or he does say a word, but it's not narrated in the text. Caleb dictates the action here. Joshua just says, amen, brother. Joshua blessed him. And he gave Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, as his inheritance. Can you see? It, it's like, well, he trusted what God said. And now he's come to claim, not what he thinks is my right, but what God said I could have. Joshua, Jesus, hey Jesus, please would you give me the thing that our great father in the faith promised. Can you see where we're going with this? Can you see why this is such a big deal? He believed the promises of God. And it's worth, let me just pause for a second to show you why um, I, I say that this is Caleb being presented as a model Israelite, one we should imitate. Um, there are a number of reasons. Of these four little chocolate chunks scattered through the narrative, this is the first one, and so it seems to be set up positively. This is how you're supposed to do things. Um, moreover, it's near the beginning of the section. It's like an idealized picture of the right response to the Lord's grace, which he's already started to show in chapter 13 with the Levites' inheritance. Interestingly, there are only two people in the entire section from 13 through to 21 who receive individual personal inheritances. Joshua at the end, towards the end, um, and Caleb. So Caleb towards the beginning, Joshua towards the end. Hey, that must be a chiasm. Yeah, well, you said that, not me, so it doesn't count as one of mine. Of course it is. The whole section is structured as a chiasm. Levites, 
personal inheritance, bunch of other stuff, I'll go into that another time, then personal inheritance, Levites at the end. Of course it's a chiasm, everything's a chiasm, probably. So there's this structural parallel. Caleb is showing us how a, a normal Israelite ought to be like Joshua, the Israelite with whom he's paralleled in the structure. In other words, this man is showing us how to be like Jesus. This is the Christology, the doctrine of Christ embedded in this text. So Joshua is the Christ figure, receives his inheritance. Very brief at the end, I think it's the end of chapter 17, no, end of chapter 19, verses 49 and 50. So how are we supposed to res respond? Well, in the way that Caleb does. He's the faithful Israelite who shows us how to correspond to and mirror Jesus. So, how do you do it? Well, Joshua is the leader, Joshua is the fighter, Joshua is the one who will set the agenda. So what's Caleb going to do here? He's going to lead, he's going to fight, he's going to set the agenda for his clan, I guess. You see, he's imitating Joshua, doing on Joshua's behalf what Joshua should have done. And it's, it's very much like the book of Acts, actually. The book of Joshua is often compared with the book of Acts, and for good reason, because if, is there a book in the New Testament that shows you a kind of Christian equivalent of the book of Joshua, the church going out into the world to conquer through the gospel? Well, obviously, it's a book of Acts. And there are actually some parallel episodes. I don't think it's an extended uh, parallel like with Luke and Acts, where almost every scene corresponds somehow, or actually, that's a chiasm as well. Don't get me started. Um, but it, there are some parallels which suggest a connection. So, um, Acts, Luke, part two, if you like, the second book that Luke wrote. In my first book, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. Acts chapter one. So, what's the second book? What's Acts about? This is all that Jesus continued to do and to teach after the day when he was ascend, raised up to heaven and ascended, seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So, how does Jesus continue to do the stuff that he's doing in the book of Acts? It's through the church. And can you see what you've got here? It's very, very much the same thing. We are called, in other words, to do in the world what Jesus does. Just like Caleb does what Joshua does. Takes up the mantle of his brother in the Lord. And it's fascinating to me, like, one way of parsing this is, yeah, he's, he's an activist. I might be 85 years old, mate, but I'm still strong enough to go to war. But, but also... What does he actually do? The, the model Israelite asks Jesus to give him what he's been promised. This is where we're going with this. This is not just a picture of an activist. This is a picture of a man who believes that God will give what he's promised to give and who prays, who, who comes through Jesus, Joshua, to ask him, Jesus, Joshua, to grant what the Lord has promised. He's, a, he's, the, he's the man who believes that... You've just had your kid baptised, right? What does the Lord promise you then? Well, I'll be God to you and to your children after you. So what do you have to do? Well, you do have, there's, there's going to be an activist in you, John Henry. Of course there is. But there's also the man of faith. Lord, you've promised to be God to Richard Knox. Now, be God to him. Be his God. Le give him everything which I lack which is a lot, but through me, supply something. Yeah, you will fail as a parent, like we all have. Like, any parents not failed? Thank you, there we are. And so what you're going to be asking, Lord, work in and through me to fulfill your purposes for this young, precious child who 
the Lord loves so much more than you do, which is impossible to believe until you just think, obviously he does. Yeah? And, and he'll be God to him. And didn't you see? I know, I didn't give you the towel and stuff, short of time, but you can have that later. And the certificate is real, and he's actually been baptized. Didn't you see the water descend on his head? Loads of it. Learning from Pastor Neil, see, there's some Baptist left in him. I'm learning a little bit. Lots of water. It's fine. <laughs> that was his joke, by the way. It's priceless. From the old, anyway, let's, let's not go that. What were I talking about? Baptism, that was it. Yeah. You saw the water, did you not? Well, you are, tr- you are called to see in the signs the thing that is promised in the oath. It's like one of the Old Testament equivalents of James chapter 1. Anybody lack wisdom, which is to say the capacity to function in every area of life? Well, let him ask God who gives generously to all. But let him ask in faith, no doubting, not like Reuben, tossed and blown around by the waves of the sea, parallel Genesis 49, James chapter 1, you remember that when we went through James? Or it's like Luke 11, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be opened. We insert all kinds of caveats in our prayers, like, because like, as, as though we don't really believe the Lord is going to do it. Well, it's interesting, the caveats are not entirely out of place, because if here's a priceless piece of theology just slipped into uh, what Caleb says, verse 12, halfway through, it may be that the Lord will be with me. <laughs> See, it's not presumptuous. As though I get to command the Lord. So he just steps back from presuming on the Lord's... Now, I'm, I'm in charge, God, you've got to do what I... Steps back from that. It may be, but that's not an expression of uncertainty. It's an expression of humanity and confidence that the Lord will do what the Lord promised. The Lord will hear and the Lord will answer all your prayers in accordance with his purposes, which is a good job because the last thing I want him to do is to answer them in accordance with mine. I wouldn't dare pray at all if I thought that God would do everything I said. I don't know, might get something wrong, but we call on him in accordance with the word that he's given. It's like, it may just be, yeah, it may just be. So he believed the words that have been spoken to him. First thing, second. By the way, the third one is really short, so don't worry. Um, The second thing, his commitment endured. He's not just a paradigm of faith or faithfulness. He actually shows very clearly the necessity of the long-term character of faith. Finish the race. Think of uh, 2 Timothy 4. I've fought the fight, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness. Now. But not, you know, I finish the race. If you continue in your faith, Colossians chapter 1. Well, here's a man who did. It's emphasized in verses 10 and 11. Look with me if you've got your Bibles open. And now, behold, the Lord has kept me alive just as he said these 45 years, way past the average life expectancy of a late Bronze Age, early Iron Age man who has to fight lots of battles. Just as he said these 45 years since the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses while Israel walked in the wilderness, and now, behold, I am this day 85 years old. I'm still... I don't know what to make of this. It's like, was it literally true, or was it like the, come on, I can do it. I'm still as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me. Maybe, maybe it's like literally true. I mean, he's about to go and fight another battle. 
My strength is as now is as my strength was then for war and for going and coming. Lovely way to try and translate a distinctive Hebrew idiom. I can get around, Joshua. I might be old, but I'm not past it. And I've endured. I've kept going in my faith. My commitment has endured through long years of wandering, long years of waiting, long years of hoping, long years of wondering whether the Israelites are ever going to get their act together. Long, and now as an old man... Give me the inheritance I promised. Do you see what does courage look like? You remember the, the way that um, Joshua is set up? It's like, be strong and courageous, chapter 1. So what does that be strong and courageous look like? What does faithfulness and commitment look like? Well, it looks like an old man who's seen it all. Steady, solid, not flighty, like, hey, I've just got into Reformed theology and I've got an idea. <laughs> Sit down, please. <laughs> like, <laughs> we'll hear your ideas in a few years' time, when they've had a chance to percolate a little bit. Still clinging to the Word of God. See, this is critical. Like we, uh, the Lord has promised Jesus, the Lord God, our Father, has promised Jesus the nations for his inheritance. They're his now. Uh, he rules from heaven and, and by right governs them, but he has not promised that that rule will be acknowledged today, or tomorrow, or next week, or after the next bright idea that we have. The Lord has committed to show faithfulness to a thousand generations of those who love me, and we're not even 10% of the way through that since Pentecost. We have quite a long way to go. The Lord's purpose is to show faithfulness and steadfast love to those who love him, for a long time. So we need, we don't need flash-in-the-pan post-millennialists. We need long-haul, committed for the long-term post-millennialists. We need people who are actually going to think, well, you know, I will live and I will grow old and I will die and my, one of my major tasks, oh, it's an interesting thought, baptism again, is to raise up the next generation to be a bit more, or preferably a lot more, faithful than me. And if we do that for a thousand generations, that'd be great, wouldn't it? And, and he must increase, and I will decrease. I, it won't be my name up in lights, and that's fine and good. Let Jesus be glorified in a thousand generations' time. Let me not strive for that glory today or tomorrow. There's an interesting contrast, actually, uh, We'll talk about this another time, but different versions of post-millennialism. Jonathan Edwards, some of you have read, America's greatest theologian, one of my heroes, espoused a, what, what has come to be known as revivalist post-millennialism. He thought the inbreaking of the final growth of the kingdom was literally around the corner, and all we've got to do is convert the French Catholics to Protestantism, and we're basically there. Um, well, not many decades before him, an Englishman, and I don't mean to draw the contrast in an invidious way, but um, on this occasion, the Englishman was right. Most of the time since then, the English have been completely wrong. But um, John Owen espoused what uh, is helpfully known as covenantal post-millennialism. Read his sermons to the nation. What one, it was, um, uh, he preached those sermons when the, the, the parliament in Britain was basically Christian. They said, um, uh, we need to find somebody to come and tell us what to do, like how to do our job. Call John, Chancellor of Oxford University, or Vice-Chancellor, I forget which. And he came and preached a bunch of sermons to the parliament to tell them how to do their job. And basically he said, long term, 
Christ has the right to rule this place. You should do it now, but don't expect it to happen overnight. It's a long way to go. So we can talk about that another time. The ages of Joshua and Caleb are also interesting. I hinted at this earlier. Um, how old's Caleb? Well, that's easy. He's 85. It says so in verse 10. How old is Joshua? Now, the reason I mention this is because it's so easy to make the assumption because of the prominence of Joshua that he's the senior guy. He's the older guy, and Caleb is sort of his sidekick. Now, Joshua and Caleb, if you have the, the quiz question at summer camp or something, who are the two spies who went to the promised land and came back faithful? And you'd be like, uh, Joshua and um, who's the other guy? I forget. Uh, yeah, Because you think Caleb's like the sidekick. Well, um, Caleb's 85. Joshua is interesting. It's harder to pin down his, name, his age, but if you think carefully, you can figure it out. After Numbers 13 and 14, which took place in the second year of the Exodus, the Lord said, none of the fighting men who are over the age of 20 will enter the land, except Joshua and Caleb. So it must be that both of them were over the age of 20 at that point. They need to be identified, therefore, as exceptions. So second year of the Exodus, they're both over the age of 20. Well, that makes sense with Caleb. Joshua was at least 22, but... Sorry, 20 as well. But when you look earlier... Sorry, a couple of verses later in Numbers 14, it recalls a year before when the Israelites left Egypt, the first year of the Exodus and says roughly the same thing, but there only Caleb is listed as the exception, verses 22 and 24, which must be because at that point, Caleb needed to be listed as an exception because he's over the age of 20, but Joshua didn't. So he's at least 20 in the second year of the Exodus and less than 20 a year before, so he must have been 19. 19 in the first year of the Exodus, 59 when they entered the land, six years later, which is where they are now, he's 65. Caleb is 85. Who's the senior man? Who's the elder statesman of Israel? It's not Joshua, it's Caleb. Caleb's 20 years older than any other soldier in the country. That's why it says in verse 7, I, and then again in verse 8, I, it's highlighting Caleb's decisive role. And it's intriguing, therefore, that he speaks for the whole tribe of Judah. The whole tribe of Judah comes to the Lord, sorry, comes to Joshua in verse 6, and Caleb speaks for them. Why? Well, because if you are old, if you are old and faithful, then people will respect you. If you're old and faithful, they will trust you. You, don't, you might not be appointed to any office, but you will have authority. I was musing on a three little maxims for leadership. I think they're Christian, as well as probably being just wise generally. Trust is placed in those who are conscientious. Respect is earned by those who are competent. And authority flows to those who take responsibility, which is what Caleb did, which is especially, especially weird given that he's not even an Israelite. Do you notice that? Not even an Israelite. How much prejudice do you think he had to put up with for those 45 years? And it says a couple of times, doesn't it? Joshua, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, he's from Edom, other side of the river. And yet he endured, he was faithful, 
His commitment never wavered, and now he comes to Jesus and says, give me what our Father's promised. Finally, briefly, he doesn't say, please, just um, give me. He sought out new ways to serve, new challenges. What does this 85-year-old man say when he goes to Joshua? I'm 20 years older than everybody else. It's about time somebody else fought for my inheritance. <laughs> no, 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 no. So much for retirement. Verse 10, second half of verse 10. I'm this day, 85, I'm still as strong today as I was 45, 46 years ago. So now, give me this hill country, end of verse 12. It may be that the Lord will be with me and I shall drive them out, just as the Lord said. You know, at some point, we're going to have to talk about the idea of retirement. You know, the modern idea of retirement was invented by the statist German Otto von Bismarck at the end of the 19th century. Hmm, that's worth thinking about. Now, obviously it's the case that as men and women move to the Caleb years, physical infirmity and other factors mean that they're not able to work perhaps as they did. Not everybody can say literally what Caleb says here. But it's interesting, he thinks of um, this old age not as, well maybe retirement not as kick back and relax and daiquiris on the beach. Retirement as redeployment. Maybe you don't need to work anymore. Fine, not for money. But uh, it turns out the church has still got some work to do. And if people at the Caleb stage have got to learn that, how much more those of us who are younger, which is most of us, I think. I don't think there's anybody over the age of 85 here. If Caleb, at the age of 85, can say, I'll go and fight for my inheritance. How much more the rest of us? Wouldn't it be shameful? Anybody who says, well, I've done my bit, ever. Anybody who ever thinks, well, I think I've done enough, frankly, it's time somebody else. I mean, obviously, there are limits to our capacity, just time, hours in the day, and there are other responsibilities we must have, but self-indulgent, chilled out, on the lounger with the martini does not seem to be the pattern of daily life anywhere in Scripture. And here's a wise man, an aged, courageous, still strong man, who says, I'll drive them out. I suggest to you that we all have work to do, and the way to do it is to imitate him. Let's pray, shall we? Merciful Father, we thank you for this picture of Christ showing us how we as his brothers and sisters are to respond to him, to call upon him to fulfill the Father's promises to us, to strive to serve alongside him and to seek out new ways, always new ways to serve him. Make us like him, we pray. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.